Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is McKenna Mezzestrano, and today I will be interviewing Sarah Zaitis about her new book, Tevya's Ottoman Daughter, Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews at the End of Empire, published in 2022. Sarah received her PhD from the Department of History at the University of Washington in 2017 and her BA from the University of California, San Diego. She was a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Foundation and has held the Titus Ellison Fellowship and multiple Joff Hanauer Fellowships at the University of Washington. Her research has been supported by the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture, Brandeis University, and the Vidal Sassoon Center for the Study of Antisemitism. Zadis is currently Associate Director of the Strom Center for Jewish Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, where I also used to work. So this is such a pleasure to have my friend and colleague here today. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, McKenna. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here today. So to start off, um, I wonder if you could just actually tell us a little bit about the title of your book, which to me is a very engaging and captivating title. So who is Tevya's Ottoman daughter? That's the that's the real question, um, and I, um, you know, it, it kind of occurred to me as I was working in the field of Ottoman and Russian imperial history um, that I started, you know, noticing that um, there were, you know, there was this kind of trajectory of migration that was going from Russia, from um, you know what is now Ukraine. Um, to uh, the Ottoman Empire, and I was simultaneously reading a wonderful book by Yuri Sleskin, a scholar at UC Berkeley, uh, called The Jewish Century, who pointed out that, you know, really kind of the 20th century is the most, you know, is the modern century, it's this Jewish century, um, and it really, you know, points out that Tevye's daughters that were um, captured in the stories of Shalom Aleichem really weren't meant to represent these fates that were available to Russia's Jews on the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution. And, you know, one of the daughters, um, you know, stays and, and uh, you know, marries a tailor and dies in the shtetl, presumably. One of the daughters follows, you know, her Russian love and kind of participates in the in the promises of the Bolshevik uh, revolution, you know, one leaves for the United States. Um, and um, I thought, well, you know, gosh, like they're, they're probably more you know, I, I know at least there's at least one more route than that, um, because we're, you know, we're seeing some of Tevye's daughters go to uh, go to the Ottoman world. Um, and it uh, kind of really went from there where I started to think about, you know, what are these patterns of migration um, and what, what are the, the what are, you know, the, the patterns of migrations that, that have been really remembered and codified in history. And um, perhaps this was a pattern that I could help um, kind of surface and, and bring to light and and maybe, you know, something incredibly interesting might, might, might come of it. So um, that's how that's how I got to the title. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, that that's what the book really sets out to, to determine is, you know, who is, you know, who is this, 
who is this daughter? And not to give away the ending, but I think, you know, I'm going to give away the ending. But, you know, what we really learn is that there's actually, you know, the Ottoman daughter is just, it's just another daughter, right? There's, there's, there's even more than that. Um, It turns out to be even more complicated. So um, that's the story behind the title. Yeah, it's like I said, I, I just think it's it's such a great title. Sometimes you get academic works that are not necessarily so exciting when you see them on the shelf, despite the contents being really interesting. But I think this is I mean, this is exceptional in that way. Thank um, you. So on on that topic, maybe you could just kind of set the historical stage a little bit. Why were Russian Jews fleeing their homes at this time? Um, what were they running away from? And what were they maybe seeking or hoping to find in the Ottoman Empire? Sure. So, um, you know, in, in the kind of the macro big picture, um, what was happening was the pro- pogroms were happening. And the majority of Russia's Jews were living in the Pale of Settlement or lands demarcated for uh, for for Jewish life um, in the Russian Empire. And, um, you know, there were incredibly violent pogroms against uh, the Jews. And many of, you know, many of the Jews were leaving, um, you know, after the Kishinev pogrom in 1903. Um, and we see, you know, this is kind of principally the the time period of the uh, first Aliyah. Um, and, you know, they were Anyway, they were leaving. Sometimes they'd go to Palestine. Sometimes they'd go to Western Europe. Sometimes they'd go to the United States. Um, in my book, I actually find several cases of people who didn't leave in response directly to violence. So in other words, the Cossacks didn't just like show up at their doorstep, but rather it was um, they, they recall a feeling of, of things that were about to get worse and mm. that there wasn't going to be kind of opportunity uh, in the Russian Empire for them, that politically things were becoming very very charged, um, and that they needed to leave. Um, of course, you know, kind of getting at like, you know, kind of why people leave, um, their homes. Um, it, you know, is really a a very complicated historical question, um, because it relies so much on memory. Um, but I do, um, but I, I, I did in several of my sources and several, you know, people that I interviewed, um, oral histories and such, um, I did have a sense that, you know, some, some were, you know, fleeing, but there were some that um, kind of had this that, this incredible foresight uh, to, you know, to make a move before, you know, things got too too violent. I see. And did you find that it was a certain like socioeconomic class of people who were leaving? Like, kind of, what were the? I mean, could could just anyone leave at this time? I, I think sometimes we, in our modern contemporary context it's so easy to get on a plane and travel we forget that perhaps in the past it was actually like not only treacherous but extremely expensive and like out of risk for some people did you find that class played a role in who left um yes absolutely um i think that the um you know the key question is kind of where where did they come from and i think that that's that determined you know who was able to leave and how um, I mean, for the most part, the people that left um, specifically, specifically to the Ottoman world, they did so because it was affordable, um, mm. or I should say more affordable than most, right? Like if you could get to Odessa, um, you know, it's basically, basically it's a, it's a short, you know, steamship ride across the Black Sea to Constantinople, um, you know, going to the United States or Western Europe was, you know, far more expensive, far more daunting. Um, 
so, you know, I think many of the, um, the migrants that I follow, um, you know, you know, I mean, first of all, like most Jews were not, you know, I mean, most Jews were living in the pale of settlement, right. In, um, in Russia, these were not, um, you know, there were of course some exceptions, you know, Jews living in the city, you know, there was, I mean, some, you know, you know, extremely wealthy Russian Jews, um, you know, Ginsburg among them, but, um, you know, those were really kind of exceptional, exceptional cases. Um, but the majority of them were, you know, just seeking a very, you know, convenient uh, route of exit. Um, but, you know, there were cases a little bit later on um, with the Jewish Colonization Association that was um, really trying to um, support, you know, Russian Jews in, in their exit um, financially um, to the, you know, not just to the Ottoman world, but, um, you know, they've supported agricultural projects um in, uh, you know, in a few different places. Um, but those were really, um, you know, poor, you know, poor Russian uh, immigrants. Um, there were, you know, some cases um, that, you know, I couldn't quite substantiate, but I, we could, we, we make some assumptions. Um, like, for example, example, um, Albert Kant, um, whose memoir I used um, in my dissertation, uh, you know, kind of speaks about, um, you know, his ability to kind of go back and forth, um, to, you know, to the Russian empire, once he arrives in Constantinople and he goes to the Western Aegean to this agricultural colony called Or Yehuda. Um, and that you kind of assume that there was some level of financial stability, um, and mobility, um, that, you know, he doesn't go into great detail about, but we can make, we can start to make some assumptions. So. Right. So, okay. There were two things that you just brought up. Well, three things, maybe they're all actually related that I want to kind of address here. And then I think we can kind of shift to what was going on in Istanbul or Constantinople at this time. But before we do that, um, I found Albert Kant to be a fascinating figure in your book. I mean, there, I, I actually, one, one thing that I love about this is that I feel like there are a lot of um, kind of interesting, like almost idiosyncratic characters, and you really totally. like draw out their personalities, um, which Thank is also you. kind of like rare for a, uh, a historical work that's taking like a pretty like broad view in certain ways. Um, I feel like we really get to know people. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about Kant, um, how you kind of came across him, and also tell us a little bit about this memoir that you found, um, and some of the complications that it presented as a source for you. Yes. Um, so the memoir, I'm trying to remember how I actually even came across the memoir. I don't know that I remember. Um, I, you know, I don't, well, I, I can say this, it's, it's a published memoir. Um, and it's, it was published in French. Um, and I, um, I basically, you know, most of my research was done um, most of my, the archival research was done um, at the Central Archive for the History of the Jewish People in Jerusalem. And that in and of itself is a very kind of interesting story about how these archival materials, historical documents from Turkey, um, anyway, landed in Israel um, after, uh, after the Second World War, after the Shoah. Um, and most of the records that I found that started mentioning um, these agricultural colonies uh, like Or Yehuda um, were really kind of institutional records of Jewish organizations. Um, so I thought, I mean, that in and of itself was very interesting. Um, and, you know, there were, turns out we're pretty good record keepers, which is always extremely helpful. 
Always um, very helpful. For a, yeah, for a historian. <laughs> um, but I, I really, and I, you know, I could piece things to, you know, I could piece things together. It was, I mean, very helpful for getting kind of um, detail of, you know, various, you know, agro, like architectural plans and, you know, number, you know, the immigrants who are applying for support and, you know, all these things. But I felt like it was kind of missing a protagonist. Um, Mm -hmm. My, my dissertation was really missing a protagonist. Um, And I stumbled across this um, published memoir. And I thought this was so interesting. And it really kind of opened up another series of questions just, I mean, really about, you know, something I, 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 touched on earlier, um, which was kind of how hard it is to really understand why people did things at the very beginning. Like, why did some migrants decide to move? And why did some decide to stay? And Mm. when you are a a memoir, right? I mean, the word memory is in there. And uh, it's just, it's so kind of unreliable, <laughs> yeah. um, but also at the same time, so fascinating. So I, I tried to use um, that as a source that was, you know, kind of both kind of inspiring the, the more of like the imaginative portion of the, of the book, mm-hmm. um, but also um, to kind of think about like, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe even like if these, like, if why he left in the first place, like was true or wasn't true, like maybe it just doesn't even really matter all that much. It's just kind mm-hmm. of more about um, interrogating and and kind of, you know, f- like finding these sources and, and learning who they were and learning who they thought that they were and how they represent themselves was maybe the more interesting, uh, the more interesting question. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you're bringing up is like, I think a lot of us as historians would love to write you know, what we might consider a strictly like economic history, knowing exactly like what motivates people and like being able to pin that down and and measure things, measure like historical events and actions based on like incentives. But the reality is that like that would entail being a mind reader <laughs> in certain instances and we just can't do that. So, um, so yeah, but I also appreciate the the difficulty with memoir as a source because I think like what, you're aware of in the book is that it can't be taken necessarily at face value. Right. So, right. Do you want to say a little more about that maybe? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, if, if he were my only source, I don't know that I would trust him, but I sure did fall in love with him. If that, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, he, he put in so much interesting detail. I mean, he falls in love. He goes back to the Russian empire. Everything is different. He falls in love with Constantinople. You know, he observes, you know, Russians in the streets and the kind of the boulevards of, of Constantinople coming alive and, you know, these Jews rubbing, you know, elbows with the, with the head of the white army, like, all you know, <laughs> there's this un- unbelievable kind of imagery that he, that he brings to life. And um, I, you know, I was so deeply appreciated, appreciative of the kind of the humanistic element, but um, yeah, I mean, I knew that there were, you know, he's, he was, you know, someone that ended up staying in Istanbul and, um, mm. you know, and publish, you know, and publishing a, a memoir, and you know, and going to work, and kind of, um, you know, moving through, and you know, being able to sustain his family through uh, Turkish statehood. Um, but so many of the, uh, so many of the immigrants that came, um, 
were not able to do that, right? They were, you know, they ended up, you know, um, you know, either they went to Or Yehuda, um, one of these with one of these agricultural colonies in the Western Aegean, or they, you know, they eventually made it uh, made their way to Palestine and what later became the state of Israel in 1948, or to Western Europe, or to the United States. So, we do know that he's an exceptional case, um, and um, you know, we can see that even you know in in contemporary Istanbul because the you know, the Ashkenazi, the number of Ashkenazi Jews is, is, is quite small. They don't have a great, um, a great sense of it, but I think there are about, uh, 10,000 Jews total living in Istanbul and Ashkenazim are, um, a, 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 a very small minority of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I would not, um, you know, I think memoir is like, you know, I mean, if you find one, for you know, for the his, I mean, if, if a historian finds a memoir on the in the archive, it's unpublished. I mean, it's like striking gold. But you yeah. almost have to like think really like critically about what you're actually go- then going to do with it, right? Right, for sure, for sure. So, um, okay, so maybe let's let's talk about Or Yehuda a little bit actually, because that's come up a couple of times. And my, yes. I mean, my impression is that your book is like really the first, one of the first to really like dig into the history of this agricultural colony. Um, so maybe you could speak a little bit about what is Or Yehuda, um, you know, how did it get started and how it's relevant to the story here? And then we'll, and then we'll get into the urban, urban side of things in Istanbul, but, but let's take, take a trip to the, to the countryside first. Sure. Uh, sounds good. So, um, so Or Yehuda um, is, I, I mean, I think that the book is the first to talk about um, Or Yehuda, and at least in, in any in any detail. But um, it, but it's not the first to talk about kind of these alternative Zionist type projects. Um, and basically, there was um, uh, an organiz- a Jewish organization that was started called the uh, Jewish Colonization Association, and it was largely funded by a German Jew by the name of the Baron of Baron Maurice de Hirsch. And uh, what's really interesting to me about um, the kind of the Jewish world in the late 19th and early 20th century, it's like the same names are kind of like have their, Mm -hmm. you know, have a hand in in the pot of like all these various Jewish organizations with sometimes like really conflicting missions. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're all kind of funding and involved in the same in the same things. Um, right. And I was really fascinated by this. Like they were kind of supporting uh, the Alliance, um, which, you know, uh, the Alliance, uh, 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 Israeli Universal, Israeli right? Universal, excuse me. I almost uh, named the, the French Alliance that I've been taking <laughs> French lessons with currently. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> um, anyway, but they, you know, that was very much a pro-empire, anti-Zionist, kind of anti-nationalist organization. But then the Jewish, and then then, then there's this Jewish Colonization Association and um, the B'nai B'rit movement. Anyway, and they're all kind of involved, you know, they all have various levels of kind of Zionistic uh, ideologies once Zionism even comes to the scene. Um, but anyway, they're all kind of involved. Um, and they're all, you know, it's like the same kind of people on the ground. It's the same, you know, philanthropists that are funding it. Um, so that's, that's, that, that was really interesting. Um, so anyway, so the Jewish colonization association kind of had this idea that, um, what Jews needed was to kind of have a piece of land 
um, that they could be self-sufficient on that was a part of the country in which they were, like wherever they were living. So, you know, it could be in the Pampas of Argentina. It could be in the Western Aegean in Turkey as um, or in the Ottoman world as um um, you know, or Yehuda was, um, there were even, uh, colonies in Russia, in the Russian empire. So it was kind of this, um, project to bring and to educate Jews about self-sufficiency and kind of help them, you know, they had a school, they had an agricultural school, um, they had, uh, you know, you know, uh, like places of residence and they, you know, they kind of went, they purchased the land, um, the, the organization purchased the land in the name of these, um, immigrants that they, you know, that they, they helped. And, um, you know, they brought in teachers from, uh, Mikvah Israel, um, which was, you know, the first agricultural school, uh, in Palestine. Um, and they taught Jews how to farm and, um, you know, become self-sufficient and they traded with their local neighbors that were, you know, you know, uh, con describe, you know, describes Armenian neighbors and, um, you know, various communities. Um, and, you know, they kind of, they lived and they toiled there. Um, and to me that, and you can still, um, actually take a, you know, take a train out there and kind of see the remnants of, um, oh, really? of what used to be, yeah, of what used to be, uh, or Yehuda. Um, and what we ended up finding is that the residents, um, for the most part, they ended up coming back to Constantinople, um, or they ended up moving on. Um, mm. they ended up moving on often to Palestine, um, either once they received some Ottoman citizenship or they just kind of like slipped through the borders and, you know, went anywhere anyway. Um, you know, some ended up in Canada, some, um, you know, some in, uh, some in the United States, some in Western Europe. Um, but, you know, I like to think of Or Yehuda as kind of like a pre-kibbutz kind of movement. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. That's sort of what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. But it wasn't like, you know, there was kind of no, it, it was intentionally not tied to um, any kind of like a, you know, a Zionistic um, kind of, you know, principle, like on design, but it ended up, of course, being a vehicle for, you know, Jews to end up, you know, you know, making Aliyah and, and moving on. Right, um, right. In so. the sense that I guess it seems like, I mean, if the teachers were from Mikveh Yisrael, it had perhaps some Zionist underpinnings, but it wasn't necessarily an act of state building in the same way that like the later kibbutzim were because, I mean, simply because it was taking place not in Eretz Yisrael, right? It was specifically right. outside of that. So was the intention that Jews would, you know, in these agricultural colonies would live there long term? Or, or was the intention from the beginning that these would be more like transient kind of stops on their way to other places? No, it was the idea was that they would like build kind of self-sustaining communities. Um, and that's the part that um, I think, um, you know, maybe didn't work so well, at least not in or, or Yehuda. Um, Adam mm -hmm. Rovner has a great study of these kind of alternative Zionist communal type uh, projects. And, you know, they were pretty diverse and, and very, you know, there were di different ones in different places and they all kind of had different different fates. But but or Yehuda, um, you know, most of the people left. Um, and especially, you know, you know, basically, um, you know, the Ottoman empire became a pretty unstable place during world war one. And that's kind of the, um, 
the, you know, it was kind of the beginning of the end for, for Or Yehuda. Um, but, you know, it was successful in the sense that, you know, it helped get Jews out of Russia uh, mm-hmm. to arguably, you know, probably, you know, to arguably a, maybe a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, help send them, send them on their way. Right. Uh, after right. that. I'm curious if, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit later also about this concept of like borderlands and shatter zones that you, mm-hmm. that you discuss. I found that really interesting, but kind of related, like, we'll get to that in a little bit, but related to that, like, was it important for you to kind of in this work begin to like expand the view of like Ottoman Jewish history kind of beyond the urban port cities? Because I think we, I mean, we know so little to be honest about things that happened outside of Salonika, Istanbul, Izmir. Um, And I think you kind of begin to get at that with these more like, agricultural spaces. Was that something that you were thinking about? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I think for, <laughs> so when I set out to write, um, the, the, the dissertation, um, I think I, you know, I started in 2015, um, and there was very, I felt like very little actually written about Sephardic Jews, um, and about, you know, just about Jewish life in general, um, in those port cities. Um, and I, at first I thought I was going to be writing about um, just Russians in the ports. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, anyway, since then there've been, um, you know, some incredible books that were published. Um, you know, Debbie Mays had a, a wonderful book. Um, uh, Julia Cohen had a wonderful book published. Um, but I really went to the archive thinking like I needed to, you know, just, I needed to find out something about Los Rusos, right? The Russians that were, mm-hmm. you know, in, um, and I thought I was going to write about Constantinople and Smyrna, right? Like those were like my two places. Right. Um, and maybe Salonika if I had time, but, um, you know, I, I felt like for some reason, like those two were, I, yeah, anyway, those two probably because they were Turkish, like were my, mm-hmm. my two, um, my two cities that I wanted to kind of write about and compare. And I remember I went to the archive on the first day and I introduced myself and said, you know, hi, you know, I'm here looking about, you know, trying to find something about the Russians. And they were like, oh, we've never seen anything like that mm. um, in these archives. Say so that one of the archivists said that to me. And I said, okay, well, uh, I do see something, you know, one of the, one of the collections is about, uh, the Ashkenazi community, you know, writing to the chief rabbi, like maybe I should look at that. And they were like, yeah, maybe you'll find something in there. And so I opened that up and I found like all this stuff about, you know, Ashkenazi Jews and specifically about the Jewish colonization association. And I remember I went back to her and I was like, well, you know, what about this? And she was like, Oh, good. You found it. Okay. Now I'll help you. And it was like, it was <laughs> like a little test, <laughs> like complete. I don't know. I, it was just like such one of those experiences of like, I don't know. Sometimes I was like, I'm like, am I a historian? Am I an anthropologist? Like, where am I? And like, why am I like, I'm in Israel doing right. this, this research. And um, anyway, and the archivist then kind of from that moment, like became extremely helpful. Um, and um, I did, you know, I did use the collect that collection, um, which was, uh, you know, collection, um, of the, of the, of the rabbinate, um, you know, receiving all these letters, uh, basically from all these communities. Um, and then, um, I, I kind of keyed into this, the, uh, the archives of, um, the Jewish colonization association. 
Um, Got so it. that was, yeah, so that was, it was totally an archival find. I did not think that I would be broadening um, the, the scope of work to look at um, the borderlands at all. Um, but I found that this was so interesting and probably need, and, and needed to be written about. And there was this, you know, really, really an amazing, uh, an amazing archive. Yeah. There. Well, yeah. I mean, it was obviously a jackpot find. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So, okay. So let's turn to the city now of Istanbul. Okay. Um, so tell us, set the stage again. So an Ashkenazi Jew from Russia arrives yeah. right in this port city. What is the makeup of this city? What kinds of Jews are there? What do they find? Um, okay. So there's so many, um, there's so many different kinds of Jews. And that's, that's something that I really was fascinated to learn about, um, is that I thought like, I mean, I knew like, okay, Constantinople, you know, Sephardic Jews, but it's like, turns out it's even more complicated than that. And there's some Ashkenazi Jews, but the Ashkenazi Jews. So anyway, so majority, anyway, okay. So majority of the Jews are Sephardic, meaning they're Jews from, from Spain, um, that, you know, and descendants from Jews of Spain that ended up in the Ottoman world. Um, and they were speaking and uh, conversing and, and writing and publishing primarily in uh, Ladino, uh, although sometimes also French, which was very confusing to me to go to an archive thinking like, oh, this is all going to be in Ladino, but like, turns out it's all in French. Uh, a lot of it is in French. So um, anyhow, so you have a Sephardic uh, majority and they have a couple of different synagogues, um, you know, really in the Galata area of, of Istanbul. Um, and, you know, besides the Sephardic Jews, you also have this, um, quote, Ashkenazi community. And I say that in quote because they don't always refer to themselves as Ashkenazim. Like these terms become really complicated. Um, mm -hmm. But there were Jews that basically came from Austria-Hungary. And they were, they had their own kind of mythology of, of you know, how they got there and who they were, but they were kind of this like, you know, well-to-do group of group of Jews that had been like so favored by the Sultan that even one of them was a tailor, a personal tailor to the Sultan. And so they opened up one of the synagogues that they called the Taylor Synagogue. Um, and, and they, you know, they dedicated the, the synagogue to the emperor of Austria-Hungary. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, you've also had Romaniote Jews, um, you have, um, and then you have these Russian Jews that are, you know, anyway, you have Russian Jews that, that end up coming in, uh, beginning, uh, in the 1890s. Um, so it's a very diverse Jewish population in a very diverse neighborhood in a very, very diverse city. Um, and you know, what we see is that when these Russian Jews start coming and, and, you know, many of them came because of the pogroms and, and some of them, um, you know, entered into, uh, you know, to use the parlance at the time, the white slave trade. Um, and you kind of have this like perfect storm for like some serious, serious Jewish intercommunal tension. Yeah. Um, and you add... <laughs> Uh, which seems to kind of have, you know, been the status quo for much of the, you know, <laughs> for the next, you know, 100 plus years. But, um, you know, you have, you, and then you enter these kind of competing political ideas a little bit later when Zionism comes to the scene. And um, it kind of, they start to play out on these, you know, kind of 
look, they think it's not really ethno-nationalist lines, but it kind of is. And, you know, these anyways, so it, it just becomes this really, it just becomes this mess, basically. Um, but it becomes like a very, very interesting one um, that I think that we, you know, we can we can learn a lot from. So tell us a little, I thought this part of the book was really interesting. Tell us a little bit about how the Sephardic Jews who were already there perceived these Ashkenazi, I mean, some of them were refugees, I think we can say, Mm -hmm. not all, but some. Um, How did they perceive them when they arrived? And how did you kind of go about what I would call this like discourse analysis, figuring out what that perception was and, and kind of what sources, how was it constructed? Can you speak to all of that? Sure. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the existing Sephardic Jewish community that was there was, was really interesting because, you know, 1892, they were getting, Sephardic Jews were getting ready to celebrate what they were calling the fourth centennial of Spanish expulsion, um, which was like literally this, this celebration of how, you know, the Jews from, you know, the Jews were kicked out of Spain and the Sultan, you know, of the Ottoman empire opened his arms to the Jewish people. And as so much of, you know, perception and kind of identity is it, they, Sephardic Jews really kind of perceived their own identity vis-a-vis other Jews. Mm. And um, when the Russian Jews started to come in, um, you know, we have to, you know, I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, but, you know, Sephardic Jews for a very, very long time were kind of perceived as this, you know, oriental backwards kind of other of the Jewish community. Um, but yeah, here they were in Constantinople, this like glittering, you know, um, incredible city, um, you know, that they had like really made, you know, made of incredible, you know, community and life. Um, and they were looking at these Russian Jews and they were like, oh, you see, <laughs> there's some, there are people that are, that are refugees that are in a worse uh, position than, than we are in. Mm. Um, so in terms of the sources, primarily I used um, the Ladino press for this portion of the book. Um, and I did, I actually went through most of the Ladino press before I embarked on um, the archival research. Um, so I kind of knew what they were saying about Russian Jews, but I didn't, I don't think I fully appreciated why, um, they were doing it. Um, and that became kind of more and more apparent when I put together the pieces with the, with the archival, uh, material that really expressed this kind of, um, anxiety that, uh, I think was, was at least, you know, with the people who are writing about it, uh, pervasive in, um, in Constantinople, um, so, you know, what was that about? Um, well, I think, you know, so much of like, why do we, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, I still do like spend a lot of time thinking about like, why do we, you know, why do we other, other people, mm-hmm. um, why do we define, why do we define ourselves against other people? And I think that, you know, so much of the Sephardic community, um, you know, was trying to, um, you know, was, first of all, I mean, it was trying to play up loyalty to, as Ottoman subjects to uh, to the Ottoman Empire that was, you know, especially in the, you know, as, as, as uh, you know, we approached World War One was really kind of in a state of um, a, really a crossroads, as were all the major, right, um, European empires, right? Like this was a time where, you know, you've got German unification happening, like you're, you're losing kind of 
um, these great, you know, empires that dominated the last, you know, 150 plus years. Um, you know, in the, in the Jewish community, of course, like more than anybody knows, um, you know, is fearful of living in unstable, uncertain times or in, in especially being perceived as, you know, a potential problem um, to the status quo. So, you know, when the Russians come in, um, there's kind of like two sets of, of narratives um, for the community in for the Sephardic community in uh, Constantinople. They're viewing the Russians as, you know, they describe them as poor and dispossessed and in the streets and they're, and they're raising money for them and they're appealing to the humanity of um, their fellow co-religionists and, um, you know, really using it as a mechanism to not just help the Jews, but also uh, to not just help the Russian Jews, but also to kind of create some unity among the Jewish community itself. Right. Like Mm -hmm. why, like, and, and this is something that's not, you know, unique to, you know, Constantinople in the 1890s, but it's like, why, you know, why do Jews organize in general, like philanthropically along kind of religious lines? And I would argue it's, um, you know, largely to promote kind of a sense of, of, of communal identity. Um, So they were, you know, they were, they were doing that. Um, And at the same time, they were also kind of not talking about something, um, which is the fact that there was a prevalence of Russian Jewish women that were, uh, engaged in prostitution in the same neighborhood. Um, so how I came on that was through kind of a different set of sources. Um, but that was, that was a bit about a bit, a bit about that, that community. And I imagine too, I mean, okay, I'm sure anyone who's listening and just heard prostitution, if they, if they zoned out for any period of time, this probably their ears are perking up and we are going to get there. But, um, I imagine too, that, you know, there are many examples uh, into the early mo- like the early modern period of Jews organizing these like global philanthropic efforts. So that is not, as you said, this is not a new phenomenon. What I imagine is in part different this time is that for the Sephardic Jews in Istanbul to be the ones providing aid does give them a different, does afford them like almost a different stature because if you're not the one needing the charity let's say right you're the one who can provide it can organize it there is a i guess paternalistic aspect to that for lack of a better term that can reverse i think a good word for it can reverse the gaze basically um that as you as you pointed out that sephardic jews had often felt um so i mean yeah i thought that was that was very that was very interesting. Um, yeah, okay, I think that's. Oh the, yeah, go ahead. That's. I think that's the key, right? Is that you know to you have to like, you know, there were Jewish basically, essentially Jewish missionaries, and um, you know the Alliance was you know basically founded right to help Oriental Jews become you know civilized like their Western you know, quote unquote civilized like their Western European counterparts. Um, and, you know, you have this generation of Sephardic Jews that were trained and educated by the Alliance, including the chief uh, rabbi, Haim Nahum, um, you know, who was kind of turning around and saying, huh, look, right, like, here's our chance. Ex- exactly. And like, they weren't using the term reversing the gaze. But, you know, I think that's exactly what they were doing is to is to, you know, point out that, you know, there was this group that needed more help 
than they ever did. And in doing so, it pointed out just how civilized and um, kind of, you know, routinized their worlds had, their, the Sephardic world had become uh, in, in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And just to, just to build on that even further, like, I think the complexity for anyone studying the Alliance, which we've brought up many yeah. times, this French Jewish school system is that, yes, there was this kind of, there was this civilizing mission, but in Hebrew, the organization I believe is called Kol Yisrael Chaverim, which literally means all of all Jews are friends, right? right. And so, like, <laughs> there's still this kind of like almost like pan Judaism aspect to it, like uniting people under what they thought was a common cause, um, right? So, as you said, these things are intertwined always, um, right. and. Yeah, that adds complexity to the picture. Okay, so let's get to the to the to the bond that we dropped earlier, <laughs> um, which is really addressed in chapter two, which I think is like one of my favorite chapters because I too am very interested in um, Jewish prostitution in the modern period, so an early modern period. So, tell us a little bit about how this issue of prostitution, the white slave trade. Um, figures into, I think, honestly, we might say how it figures into creating boundaries between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, but also just, you know, feel free to talk about it in whatever way you want, because it's a fascinating uh, element of this study. Yeah, so I guess the, the spoiler alert um, is that there were Jewish women who were prostitutes in in Constantinople, and um, I, I guess it's a it was a spoiler for me because um, you know when I before I even went to go you know to the to the archive um, I had really like close to no I, I I knew a little bit of this because there was like a, a, a reference to Ben Gurion's visit to Salonica actually mm. where um, anyway somebody made a comment to him like you please be careful because they don't want you know because you're from Russia like please they, you don't want to be mistaken for like a white slave trader and I thought oh, oh that's interesting <laughs> yeah um, and I kind of like tucked it away and then I went to the archive and I went through you know kind of all of these materials and I saw that the like materials were starting to allude to something and I was like what is this that they're alluding to I wonder if this has something to do with what um you know what you know the comment with Ben Gurion mm-hmm. um and um anyway and so then I, I I looked at a different set of sources and I looked at um Again, the I looked at some Jewish philanthropists, and I looked uh, and I looked at these w- Western European Jewish philanthropists, including um, Lady Battersea, who is uh, one of the Rothschilds, and um, I saw that there was like this kind of like actual obsession about um, the white slave trade in Constantinople, and it turns out there was an obsession because a lot of these women were Jews, um, and they were Jews from Russia. Um, so this was super interesting um, because there were, you know, the, the legal system in uh, the Ottoman Empire was um, was very interesting because you had a system of capitulation. So basically you had all of these Russian subjects that were technically, um, you know, still governed by, by the Russian Empire. Um, and, you know, the support city and like there was prostitution in a port in in a port city um and you know one of the places that you know was kind of the main brothel that i i look at was very interesting because it was also a synagogue 
Uh, and uh, basically, it was like the bottom floor. It's called Or Hadash, New Light. And um, it was built because... Well, anyway, so, okay, I'll, I'll tell you about the structure of the building and then and then I'll tell you why it was built. But, you know, basically when, so the, the bottom floor of it was a synagogue and the, and the upper levels were a brothel. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, and it was built because the Ashkenazi Jews, um, the the or who are who by now started calling themselves the German Jews and now you see mm. why they want to call themselves the German Jews because Ashkenazi might mean also Russian which might mean white slave trader or prostitute or you know something absolutely terrible um they basically said look like Russians like you can't worship here um wow. and so they built um uh you know anyway two two other synagogues um or Hadash was one of them um, and, um, anyhow, so, and then they, uh, they built the Ashkenazi synagogue. Um, so, um, so then how did the, I mean, so it sounds like the Sephardic Jews were aware of this then they were aware yes. that this was going on. And I mean, how did they, did this lead to like further prejudices of any kind? You know, it's a very, very interesting question. Um, they, yes, um, it did. Um, it also, I mean, it led to, you know, kind of this, this idea that we needed to like work, you know, work together to save the, you know, to save these, these women, but, um, mm -hmm. primarily, and this is what's kind of interesting is that the, uh, the Sephardic community was primarily concerned with the Russians that were in the streets like not the prostitutes, but the Russians that were, um, you know, that were like, you know, kind of flooded the streets en masse um, and that really needed their support, the soup kitchen, the, you know, subscription services to, to help them. Um, and the people that, that were most concerned about the, the, uh, the, about prostitution were actually these Western European Jews um, and Jewish wow, philanthropists right. and American Jewish philanthropists that were like, well, wait a minute, um, you know, remember like this is the time of kind of you know, this is the victorian era right there's this kind of like moral idealism and um kind of these the sensibility of 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 purity and um you know anyway anyway just that you know that that morality um and you know jews participating in prostitution was not was not um you know kind of congruent with that um and of course, you know, to kind of complicate things further is that, you know, this is also a time when, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just like, so, this is almost silly to say, because it's like, when is there not a time where Jews are not concerned about anti-Semitism? But mm -hmm. this was certainly a time when Jews were very concerned about anti-Semitism. And I think in particular, Jews who had kind of experienced in bourgeoisment, right? Like Jews who had kind of become very well-to-do, um, they thought like, you know, this is, this is not, this is not a good look for the Jews, um, to have, you know, them involved in prostitution rings, um, you know, not just in Constantinople, but also spread to Argentina. And, um, you know, this was, wasn't good. And we needed to, you know, the, these, you know, Ashkenazi wealthy Jews needed to do something about it. Right. Um, yeah. Do you think, I mean, I, it, what, what you just said made me wonder, and I, I think you and I have actually spoken about this before, but 
Did you find that researching this part of your book from like a historiographic perspective was difficult? Because my perception based on like the limited amount of just kind of thinking that I've done about this is that it's it's often hard to find scholars who even write about this topic um, because, I mean, for perhaps similar reasons that you're alluding to. So can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yes. So um, I think there's kind of two two issues, primary issues with researching this topic. The first is that I think Irving Howe pointed this out, is that groups that are struggling for survival are not really quick to announce their failures, mm. right? And so you have, you know, Jewish community, you know, global Jewish community that's, you know, struggling for survival. They're not going to be like, hey, you know, let's like point out the fact that we have, you know, this thing happening. Let's, you know, let's try to do this, you know, relatively quietly and, and try to try try to fix the fix the problem from within. Um, so and then you just have this lack of sources, source material. So, you know, you have to think of the, um, you know, the archivist project as really a political and strategic project, right? Mm. They're trying to archive and preserve certain kinds of materials. And you could understand why someone gathering materials from this time period might not want to um, collect materials documenting just how pervasive prostitution was in their own community. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's a that's a major problem. And I mean, also, like, let's not forget, these are women, right? So, you know, finding any women's voices in the archive of the time was was extremely challenging. I mean, I could count on one hand, I think, the sources that I found uh, that were in the archive that were preserved about women. So you really have to be um, kind of creative about how you access the history because you know what happened, right? You know that, you know, there's discussions about who these women, you know, were. And, you know, I have um, this, what I think is just this brilliant anecdote about um, these two women who ended up um, leaving, they were prostitutes in Constantinople and they ended up making enough money somehow to um, leave the trade and they actually bought the building that this synagogue slash brothel was in. Um, wow. or, yeah. Or Hadash. And they turned it into um, basically like a rest home for, for women who wanted to leave the trade. Um, but I've never really been able to find more about that story. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think it, it has to do with just the limits of the archive and what was, what was preserved. Yeah. That reminds me just this week I was reading a, really interesting book called um, Archive Wars um, about the archives in Saudi Arabia, which are very, I mean, extremely political. Um, And the scholar, I just, her name is escaping me right now, said um, the erasure of history is history because that is whatever is erased and then does not make it into the archive is what you know. (laughs) Um, You only know what's there. So it is erasure that makes our understanding of the past and trying to fill that in is really difficult. Um, That's really powerful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to speak also a little bit about the way that the Ashkenazi community eventually began to kind of coalesce into kind of a self-recognized body um, and how they dealt with communal self-governance. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So this, this was very interesting. So um, 
basically it all kind of started with the arrival of um, this rabbi from Russia uh, named uh, Rabbi uh, David Fivel Marcus. And he was brought in um, because, you know, he was from Russia, but he was, you know, kind of German educated. And they thought this would be kind of a good um, interlocutor for all these kind of diverse Ashkenazi communities that were uh, working at the time. And Rabbi Marcus just became one of these charismatic, really influential figures that brought a community, um, in some ways that brought in a, a community together, and then in other ways kind of polarized uh, the larger, you know, Jewish community. Um, so, you know, in, in, in the Ottoman Empire, you know, things were organized, like in Russia, according to um, confession, right? Um, so these were kind of these multi- multi-confessional empires, right? Multi-religious uh, empires. So, you know, your government structure depended on what religion you um, belong to. So, you know, if you were a Sephardic Jew, you would have your um, your chief rabbi um, and you'd have to go to your, you know, religious court for, um, you know, things like marriage and divorce and, you know, all, all, the, all the kind of, all the things. Um, but it became, started to become a little bit complicated because with the kind of influx of, Ashkenazi Jews, um, you know, it just became, you know, the, the city became, the Jewish community became more diverse and, uh, you know, it became, uh, the, the community determined that it would be great to kind of establish this, um, this idea of like a second rabbi, um, and also later, um, a council, um, of, of Jewish, uh, figures that could kind of, you know, advise the chief rabbi and have, um, a stake in shared governments, governance of the Jewish community. So Rabbi Marcus arrives and he heads up the Goldschmidt School, which is a Jewish school and primarily um, Ashkenazi Jews attended it. So a lot of Sephardic Jews went to the Allianz School, Ashkenazi Jews went to the Goldschmidt School, um, and then he later became, you know, the rabbi of the Ashkenazi Synagogue. Um, and I, for me, when where Rabbi Marcus becomes really interesting is that he becomes um, associated with Zionism um, mm. in in Constantinople, which was a politically very very tricky thing for the Jewish community at large um, of the city. Because, you know, as Zionism gained popularity, remember, like for a Jewish community that's living in the Ottoman Empire, that means it's a nationalist separatist movement. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's dangerous, really. Um, and um, the Sephardic community, especially or members of the Sephardic community, it's not to say that some Sephardic Jews weren't Zionists, of course they were, um, but publicly became extremely concerned um, including the chief rabbi Haim Nahum, who was, you know, very staunchly anti-Zionist and pro, pro empire, became very concerned with Rabbi Marcus kind of riling up uh, the Russian Jews um, that were coming in with their, you know, quote revolution revolutionary ideals, especially um, in the earlier, and uh, uh, you know, in the early twentieth century. So. Um, Anyway, it, it becomes kind of this like fiery debate, um, and it and it seems to kind of go along these, you know, kind of Ashkenazi versus Sephardic lines. At least that's the way that it plays out, and it plays out in the press, especially after 1908 and the censorship laws 
um, you know, ceased to exist after the Young Turk Revolution. Um, and you had new newspapers that exploded on the scene. So it wasn't just El Tiempo um, anymore that was speaking for the, you know, for the Jewish community, but you, but you had La Roar, um, and you had, you know, all these figures that kind of, um, you know, decided to really, to really start writing about the uh, prevalence and the um, kind of the excitement of, of Zionism and this idea of this Jewish state uh, in Palestine. So on, you just mentioned El Tiempo. So just for, for anyone who doesn't know, right, this is like the most important, longest running Ladino newspaper in Istanbul. I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about the editor, because again, speaking of the personalities in your book, I think you do a good job in certain, you know, of encapsulating David Fresco in certain ways. Um, so, you know, anyone who is familiar with Ottoman Sephardic history will likely know who he is. Um, but can you just speak about a little bit about the views that he espoused during this time um, and why, I mean, it seemed to be relatively controversial. So, um, yeah, so David Fresco is this really interesting figure because um, he, like, writes himself into the news. Like, he writes, like, he, like, becomes, like, the newspaper at certain points. Yes. You're, like, reading the, you're reading the articles and you're like, who is this written by? And then you realize, like, oh, it's probably the editor just writing. Yes. Um, so he becomes, um, you know, very much a... Um, you know, kind of, um, an oppositional figure, I would say. Yeah, he Exactly. He becomes like a very much an oppositional, uh, figure of Zionism. Um, and you, um, and it's, it's so interesting because there's this kind of switch that happens, right? So you have like, you know, um, you know, David Fresco kind of, uh, reproducing, you know, articles about you know about the first of all well first of all he's covering the kind of the saga of the russian jews arriving in the 1890s and you know the los rusos that are in the streets and you know all these things and then we have to like you know raise the money and who's raising money and you know all, all these things the call to arms and the you know the articles about the you know passover and the fourth centennial of spanish expulsion and all you know, all these like things that are just connecting these narratives of of, of russian jews and jewish history and, and needing the Sephardic jews to to step in. And then there's a switch that happens where he starts to write about Russians and about um, Zionists as kind of like, you know, the enemies of, of the community. Mm. Um, So it's this, you know, and he kind of gets into these like little bits of like war with like other, you know, editors, like other newspapers. And it's all kind of just like, it's playing out in the pages of the press. Right. Um, so it's basically, yeah, Jews disagreeing with other Jews in the pages of the press, which I know is not, not a novel idea for, <laughs> for many of us who are, you know, up to date of yes. contemporary politics. But um, <laughs> yes. it, is, it, is, it was very interesting to observe from well, a historical I think, perspective. I mean, I think what's important about this and and what is new, I think, is that, and I mean, this goes to the entire project, but first of all, Yes, it may have been true that Istanbul was predominantly made up of Sephardic Jews, but they were not the only ones who had a political, social, cultural stake in the city or in the way that the community operated. And then even within those groups, there was disagreement, right, about how to approach nascent political projects like Zionism um, or like communal leadership. And I think that that is... That is one, I think, like important narrative that this book challenges is that like Istanbul was 
an extremely like heterogeneous place. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, okay, so we are running out of time. So I just want to wrap up with one kind of like bigger question um, that I, or one kind of bigger idea, I think that you bring up in this book. So you say many fascinating things about modernity, which is this ever elusive historical subject of, of inquiry. Um, but one thing that you say is that the Jews that you study demonstrate that there is no such thing as modernity, but only claims to modernity. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just elaborate on this a little bit and conclude by telling us why you think this might be a useful lens through which to view Jewish history. Sure. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. I remember when I started graduate school um, in 2010, like we, we, I, I spent so much time thinking about modernity and kind of noticing this obsession of scholars to talk about modernity. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to do that. Like, I moved on. Like, we don't need to talk about modernity anymore. And then I, when I read the, when I was starting to read the sources of my dissertation, I realized that there's actually, there's something, there's a there there, um, I, I, I think. Um, and that's the, the Jews of the late 19th and early 20th century Ottoman world were definitely experiencing this transformation. Um, and they were kind of confronted with this challenge, right, of, of you know, of migration into the city, of, of needing to determine who they were, right, of the prospects of, you know, political, um, you know, difference, right? That this idea that the world was about to become organized in a very different way than it had previously been organized. Um, and really kind of what that meant for, 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 for their own self-identity, for their own self-expression. And, you know, certainly like, I, I'm not going to make the claim that like, you know, Jews suddenly became modern, <laughs> right? Um, in, you know, in 1892, once they like met like Russian Jews or, or, or right. anything like that. But, um, but I definitely think that they started to engage in this process of, of claiming modernity. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm not the first scholar to, to look at this time period and, and, and to, and to say that. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's like, it's just such an, it's, it is just, I don't know, it just, I, I couldn't get around using it because I, I think that there, that, that's what it, that's really what it felt like from the source material, um, that there was this claim to modernity that was happening, um, as the world, as, as Jews realized that they were living in a world that was about to become reorganized and that they had kind of, um, really experienced, you know, a transformation and were on, you know, on the brink of, of the next transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think perhaps like it's another parallel, like discursive project, really, to the kind of like othering that we spoke about earlier. But how can we, how does one like present as modern? How does one um, think about the, yeah, what modernity looks like, whether you then actually do it or not? <laughs> um, you want to think about what, what it means and how it how it is represented, I guess. Um, so yeah, Absolutely. I thought that was, I thought that was a really important part of the book. Well, Sarah, as I think I have, um, 
revealed perhaps too clearly. I love this book. Um, I It was really a pleasure reading it. I hope that anyone who listens to this does take the time to read it. Um, and also because I think this is the first time that I've interviewed someone so, clu- so close to the actual release date of their book. So I want to also just say congratulations, because this is a this is a wonderful, wonderful accomplishment and moment in your life. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so fun. And I really enjoyed, um, you know, getting to go back and um, kind of think about all of these historical actors all over again that, um, you know, it's it's really, for me, it's been the joy and pleasure of a, as a historian to, to be able to kind of, you know, f- just find these incredible people from, you know, kind of the everyday immigrants that were, you know, speaking Russian and Yiddish and, and, you know, to the kind of remarkable ones like, uh, like Rabbi Marcus. Um, So it's been just a pleasure to be here, McKenna. And thank you so much. Yeah, of course. All right. We are going to sign off now. So once again, I am McKenna Mezzestrano, and this was Sarah Zaitis on her new book, Tevya's Ottoman Daughter, Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews at the End of Empire.